2: Hi, Slaney. Hi, it's Joanna. And welcome to the newest episode of Show Your Work, our first episode with a special guest. Our guest is... Hi, Kathleen. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Okay, well, we're having you because uh, by the time you all listen to this on Monday, um, Black Panther will have broken all kinds of box office records. We're still 48 hours Mm -hmm. away from, like, the confirmation of just how big it will be. But every six hours, they keep revising the projections the latest projection right now is it will be a minimum $200 million long weekend opening.
1: I'm going to ask an ignorant question I should know the answer to. When when they calculate those, are those North American totals? Like Black Panther is opening worldwide, yes? Yes. So mm-hmm. how are they constantly re-upping the weekend totals based on, like, what's the last place on the international date line? Where do they… <laughs> <laughs>
2: The number I just threw out is domestic.
1: So it's Uh, US and Canada.
2: Uh They'll probably have the international totals on Monday as well. But they're gauging the domestic totals. um, So they have projections, obviously, leading up to whatever the science is, leading up to the opening. And they keep revising their projections with every, like, opening day or next day tally. So Thursday night it opened, and when it opened on Thursday night, they were like, oh, fuck this is going to be big. Because if Thursday night is that big, then I guess percentage-wise, Saturday is going to be a monster. So Thursday night was huge. Friday, we're, on, we're recording Saturday right now, but Friday was apparently even bigger. So now they're saying, well, people are going and they're going three times. So we're going to punch in the algorithm and it should spit out somewhere around 200. Some people are saying as high as 215.
0: I don't know why anyone was surprised. Like, to me, this is like, yeah, yeah, 200, we're going to get 250, amazing. Like, this is an event. Everybody's going, like, I've seen it, well, today I will have seen it three times already. (laughs) Obviously. Um, I have friends who went Thursday night, Friday night, they're going again Sunday night. Like, this is, this is what I expected. I'm not surprised. I don't know why anybody was like,
1: oh, fuck, it got, it did like a good
0: Thursday. Oh, fuck. Well, I mean,
1: I'm not surprised. I think it's partly like you want to always have a story, right? I was just thinking like they always either underestimate or overestimate a box office so that there's a, a tale to tell. Mm. Nobody's going to be like, this was an accurate projection of what we figured would happen, even if that's a great number. <laughs> right. Um, not least because like the, the magic has gone out of the box office totals because people like you people, mostly <laughs> you, Elaine, like book tickets in advance. You're always like, Duanna, you cannot just walk into a movie. You have to book your tickets. Well, you do. Yeah. For Black Panther, like my Thursday tickets were booked two months ago. Right. But that, in addition to, I'm just going to say, like maybe it spoils the mood a little bit, the spontaneity a little bit. Um, There's probably some sort of advanced ticket condom uh, line that I could be drawing here. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, But then the projections are even more not that mysterious because people are buying advanced tickets. We know this. Mm -hmm. it's all a story is what I'm saying. A good
2: story. Well, I agree with you. I mean, and that's the work of the studio too. It's Disney Marvel. And even now experts are saying they're trying to be cautious and they're saying, oh, like, you know, maybe right now the revised from Disney Marvel is, oh, maybe 185, which everybody is like, no, that's fucking bullshit. But it can be, yeah, you're totally right. It can be. So on Monday they come out being like, Wow, 200, whatever the number is going to be, this is so great. And it's like a next level, second phase, third phase publicity push. So that next weekend, everybody's like, for like two people out of 85 who haven't gone to see it, Mm -hmm. those two people will be like, oh, maybe I should go check out that Black Panther that everybody's watching.
1: I mean, this is is a term, right? Sandbagging. Mm -hmm. Like when you lower expectations on purpose so that then you look Mm -hmm. like a hero. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would… I could spend a whole lot of time on just this, on when that's an appropriate thing to do work-wise. But also, we have so much to say, and we haven't even gotten into the why it's an event and what we're going to...
0: Well, I mean, okay, I think that we can't talk about the box office of of this film without talking about, (sighs) historically, films with black casts. There's, like, a responsibility, it feels like, on the black community sometimes, that this movie has to do well or else they'll never make another one, right? That this box office is contingent on um, there being opportunities for black films in the future. It didn't feel like this with Black Panther. Obviously, it's part of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It was going to be fine. It had the Disney like machine behind it. But I think that part of this story, if we're telling a story about this box office, part of the story is that this is a film with an all-black cast that is doing these numbers, and it's not just black people going to see this movie.
1: No, by any means, right? Like, right. it's, it's sure, you could count on, let's say, before you get to the word of mouth, before you get to the two people who are just going to go see it because it's a hit, there are Marvel nerds, angry Marvel nerds, who are like, fuck you, it's not going to be that good, <laughs> and they're going to go see it <laughs> resentfully. Um, as you said, like, black movie-going audiences who feel an obligation, and I would be interested to know whether we have heard of anybody who's like, I actually don't care about comic book movies, but I'm going to see this for, for that reason.
0: Yeah, I have people, I have friends and family who are like, okay,
1: <laughs> like and Angela then, Bassett? Sure, I will show up. But so then what? So then are they, are they like, and it was amazing? Or are they like, no, I did my thing because there was a… Yeah, they were like, and it was amazing. Okay. So
2: the first part of it is I did my thing, yeah. but then I went… And it was amazing. Yes. Right. So Black Panther
1: is changing lives, is what you're saying. Like… I'm just so excited <laughs> for you guys to see it. I can't… Yeah. I'm so excited. We are seeing it right
2: after we finish this podcast. We're seeing it as a full team. Um, the full Lani Gossip team will be in the theater sitting in two rows. It's really exciting. But the reason why we wanted to do a big Black Panther talk is because, number one, the different levels of work that went into making this movie is, like… We could do 18 episodes on it. The reaction to that work, we also want to discuss on today's show, and also we want to address a few questions that we have, but also that many readers have sent to us about who Black Panther is for, who gets to claim it, and who should be seeing it, which is essentially, you know, part of the box office conversation. So let's start with the story that I pitched to Anna a couple weeks ago, and we decided to table it for today's show. Um, It was an interview with Ruth E. Carter uh, in the cut that I read and I sent to Joanna because I thought it was so interesting to me that um, part of the Black Panther publicity machine thus far has been not only to profile the actors, which is what we normally get, but they have done a great job pushing out the people behind the camera to get them pressed, to get them out there and make them visible. I love this because we, on Show Your Work, Duanna, you and I have talked about the excuses that studios and people in powerful positions make about, I couldn't find a woman to do this. I couldn't find a costume designer who was of color or a female. And Ryan Coogler ended up assembling a team of people that systematically rejected that excuse. The cinematographer on Black Panther is also the same cinematographer for Mudbound, the first woman uh, nominated for an Oscar in that category. All the costume designers, all the hair and makeup artists, they are either women or women of color or people of color. So what he is saying is, hey, every time you say that you can't find a person to represent in uh, like inclusion and diversity... I just delivered you a $200 million movie and I hit all those boxes. So, what's your fucking excuse now? I wish you could see me because
0: I'm like nodding vigorously <laughs> <laughs> at everything Lainey is saying. Um, absolutely. And I think that that is why these people are being profiled. They're, you know, F-I- FODs to steal from Shonda Rhimes, first only difference. Like, they, the reason why Ruth E. Carter is being profiled is because, I mean, she's, a legendary costume designer. She, you know, worked on Malcolm X. She's worked on a bunch of Spike Lee projects. But um, the fact that this film was so black behind the scenes and had so many women, um, yeah, it's it's unheard of, especially for a Marvel film. And that is why it's been this rollout, this press rollout has involved them.
1: So here's what's amazing about it and why it matters beyond... Uh, for people who are like, okay, but sure. But that was, you know, that's for this film. That's for whatever. Hmm. Uh, There's a podcast that I love called Happier in Hollywood, uh, which is delicious on a number of levels. And uh, the assistant to the two hosts had been working on Queen Sugar with Ava DuVernay. And Ava was adamant about wanting women and women of color and people of color in key creative roles. And uh, often they were harder to find. And the the team would say to each other, do you want to be the one who goes back to Ava and says you couldn't find somebody? No, look harder. Mm. What I love about this is that if we keep saying the name Ruthie Carter, then she's going to be even more well-known than she is. And here's what's going to happen, though. This is the amazing part to me. She's going to be too busy. There are going to be worthy projects that she is too busy to take on as a costume designer, things she would love to do that she physically cannot But then she's going to recommend people. She's going to Mm -hmm. say, oh, I have somebody else, an apprentice, somebody who's been working with me. Uh, You can have them. You have the Ruthie Carter brand. The way that a Patricia Field was seen as like a name. And if you can't get her, you get one of her people. And that becomes almost a brand in itself. So-and-so worked with Ruthie Carter who blah, blah, blah. And they create stables of people in this way who as you point out, Elaine, like make a lie of the idea there aren't enough yeah. creatives behind the camera to find. You're, you're
2: totally right. And I think that when you find that stable or start building that stable, then those people can then begin to infiltrate different sets and share their best practices. And the reason I'm saying this is because uh, last year on the show, uh, Kathleen, we talked about Jennifer Hudson, and we talked about um, Issa Rae and Insecure, and we talked about lighting in yeah. in particular. Yes, lighting people of color on shows, and in the past, you had shitty lighting for people of color because those alleged longtime veterans had never had the experience or weren't put in a position where they had to light people of color before, right. and. Now, we're having, we're seeing more and more people in the industry who can bring that experience, and when you have that person on your set, then everybody's going to pick up on those skills, or at least they're given the opportunity.
0: And at least they don't have the excuse to not be good at their jobs, right? With the, I feel like when it's like, oh, this is this is harder, I've heard from black actresses who say, uh, people will say to me, you're harder to light. Like, I... I freelance write for another magazine and um, I interviewed somebody who was saying that some of the colorism, the pieces on colorism, some of the colorism that she faces is people, her agent saying to her, you know, you're harder to light, so that's why you're not getting roles. And one of the- and that's, but that's giving that person who's saying, oh, she's too hard to light, like, you're not, a, you're not, you're not being, you're not doing your job well enough, right? If you are not able to light someone in your cast... You are not good at your job. But that is also because they haven't done it, right? Like you're saying, Lainey. So to me, it's like these people are now going to be, A, better at their jobs,
1: and B, they don't have the excuse anymore. You know, uh, I'm now in the uncomfortable position of, of defending uh, those, those people who have said, oh, you're hard to light. But one of the things we hmm. talked about back then – was the idea that one of the reasons that these phrases come up, or oh, you're hard to light, or it's hard to do the makeup for, Jennifer Hudson, who was more or less told it was her fault for having a lip that caused a shadow or whatever, is that the things that were taught as being the way to light or the way to uh, apply makeup or whatever for the, for the screen, for the stage, were, was all based on having white faces in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. All of that was a standard that people were taught, and they don't even know why they know, oh, we white balance to such and such a degree, and we do this to such and such a thing, all of which is is white-centric. Not only do films like this create more jobs, create more celebrity uh, craftspeople, but they also get to redefine what it is to do it properly, to do your job well, but also to do your job properly, to have the freedom, to have the creativity, to be like, what if we do the thing we're not supposed to do? Turn the F-stop all the way down, to, you know, crank the lights too high. These are all very technical terms, guys, by the way.
0: (laughs) But I think this is what I'm trying to say in that, yeah, the doing the thing that we're not supposed to do, that is like a job description or that is the like parameters of the job that to me, has just been an excuse. Like, once you see Wakanda, I'm so excited for you to see Wakanda, but once you see it, you're gonna be like, oh, that is how black people are supposed to be lit. Like, that is what
1: it's supposed to look like. These are people excelling at their work. Absolutely. And that's exciting that they get to, that they get to prove that not only is this the way you do it and that this is the way it works, but like, They're innovating a whole new thing, which is amazing, like a whole new style, a whole new, perhaps there will be like, so often on sets, people say, uh, there are terms, why don't you jimmy it? Why don't you this? They're all flying out of my mind, of course. Like, can we get a, like sometimes, I don't know, they'll say like, can you Sophia that lens, meaning rub Vaseline on it to make the actress look less wrinkled, for example, would be one. Uh, I'm making that up. It's something like that. Please (laughs) go with me. (laughs) My point here is that I'm waiting for the day in the not very distant future where Mm -hmm. somebody's going to look at the monitor when we're testing a shot and go, eh, can we Wakanda this a little bit?
0: Oh, okay. 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 okay.
1: Right? Yeah. It's it's amazing and it's coming and that's my point. It's not just making it better. It's not just making it how it should be or doing your job, as you say, without an excuse. It's getting the chance to create a whole vocabulary and a whole style. That's Mm -hmm. what's exciting about this. Well, and
2: that's what Ruthie Carter has been part of, this entire team who's created this huge style um, and this look and this aesthetic that, you know, Kathleen, you just said, you can't wait for us to see Wakanda. I can't either because this is a world, they've built a world and the the presumed consequence results, amazing uh, feat that will result is that we're going to come out of that theater and we're going to be like... I want to live in Wakanda. Yes, I want to. Those clothes are amazing. Ruthie Carter in this the cut interview talks about the inspiration that she drew from to create the designs. Why Denai Guerrera, for example, her character wears gold earrings as opposed to the rest of the Dora Milaje. They wear silver earrings, but there's a whole intended look and feel to Wakanda, and I. I have been thinking a lot about what my reaction is going to be and what my takeaway is going to be. I fully anticipate that I'm going to go to Wakanda and I'm going to come back from Wakanda and I'm going to be like, well, shit, I want those gold earrings. And she says at the end of her interview with the cut, she says, um, because she's talking about like head wraps and she's talking about some of the costume features. And at the end of this interview, she says, We're making Africa chic again. And I hope when people see that, they go, tomorrow when I go to work, I'm going to wrap my hair up. Now, I can assure you, Kathleen and everybody else listening, I am not going to show up at work with my hair in a wrap. Like, Mm -hmm. I I know that I can actually see that line and I won't be crossing it. (laughs) But I do think that the popularity of Black Panther... Um, and the fact that we're all going to be obsessed with the aesthetic of Wakanda is going to bring up some very interesting questions about what we can, how we can show our respect for this film and draw inspiration from it without getting into appropriation. Like, I'm worried about Halloween. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so I,
0: I read a, a piece uh, on Ruthie Carter, and she talked specifically about Halloween. It was in Bustle. And she said that because of the work that she put in to these costumes and the authenticity that she brought to each tribe and drawing inspiration from real African tribes, um, like Queen Ramonda is uh, wearing… Not- That's Angela Bassett, right? right? That's Angela yeah. Bassett's character. Um, you know, her hair isn't shown. She's wearing a crown that co- that covers her hair. And that was very specific, I believe, to the Zulu tribe in South Africa. Um, and so Ruthie Carter was like, you know, if, if people are going to base their costumes on what I created in Wakanda, then I'm okay with that because it's authentic and it's not… Um, She thought that it would be out of respect because of the respect she put in. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because I, I mean… So what, she was saying
2: that it was a way to honor her work? Yes.
0: And the way, oh, and because through her work she was honoring the authenticity of these African tribes and African nations.
1: I mean, I wish, I I say this every week, but I wish there was a camera here because… Uh, after making your very salient point, you kind of uh, said, oh, "I don't know," and kind of crunched down because it's complicated, right? It is, com-
0: and uh, yeah, it is very complicated. I think the part of the complication is uh, part of part of representation, and, and what I always dreamed of for representation is to see myself represented on screen, um, but also to have, you know, my nieces and nephews grow up not feeling the alienation that I felt and to have uh, a kind of level playing field with their peers so that, you know, when you're looking at costumes, I couldn't dress up as a Disney princess when I was little. All my friends went as Disney princesses and I didn't have a black Disney princess to be, so I, I was excluded, right? So I think in the representation conversation, you want kids to be able to dress up as the same things. You want that, like, equal, that equality there. But at the same time, like, if I went out on Halloween night and saw a bunch of white girls dressed up as the Dora Milaje, I can't tell you that I wouldn't be like, you don't get all the things. Like, you don't, you don't get this too. This is like so personal to me and so exciting. Seeing a Akoya on that screen is like, so it feels like it is for us. Well, that Which brings I know up gets, is, gets me in trouble every time I say. Well, that's it's, it's that's for the us. question here.
2: Like, how can how can people who are not black enjoy it and feel for it and support it, but also not claim it? What? Where is the line between support and claiming? <sighs> to me,
0: I think that it goes back to respect and research. And I also think it's different for kids. I think kids have, have an innocence about them that if I saw a little girl dressed up as Shuri, a little white girl dressed up as Shuri, that's not offensive to me. That's that's not… That's Black her. Panther's younger sister. Yes. Yeah. Played by Letitia Wright. You are all going to be in love with her after you see this movie. Um, To me, that is more, like you said, that is more uh, uh, honoring as opposed to claiming. But… Yeah, it's hard with the Halloween costume because you don't know the intent when you're just looking at it, if you're seeing pictures of it.
2: Well, the same, I mean, the same thing happened in hip hop, right? Like there are, you can enjoy uh, hip hop artist's work, but then we have seen over the last 20, 30 years, white people then extracting parts of it mm-hmm. where there are some people who, who who have just said
1: like that phrase that you use, but it's not for you. And, you know, this is to me the more interesting conversation because Halloween, while fraught at the best of times, is a bit of an exception and there's always constant debate about whether Halloween is for kids, as you point out, or is it for adults and what is sort of the whatever. Uh, If, for the sake of argument, we put Halloween aside for one minute, the more interesting conversation to me is about the more constant appropriation of When are you appropriating, when are you influenced by excellent art? In this case, a movie, sometimes in the the case of music, right? Like, when is it an homage? When is that okay? What are the questions that people are going to find themselves faced with? You said, Elaine, oh, I'm worried about Halloween. But I think what you're saying is that you're worried far before that when Mm -hmm. you're talking about the earrings that you, uh, you know, long for or similar. Like, there are a lot of smaller questions before that. Well,
2: yeah, I I do want to check myself. Like, I'm fully expecting that we're going to go see this movie and we're going to be completely taken over by the beauty and the wonder and the badass coolness of Wakanda. And naturally, when you like something so much, you want to try to be a part of it. Like, that's Harry Potter, right? Of course. We go to Harry Potter. We're like, this world is amazing. I want to be Gryffindor, Slytherin, whatever. I want this and I want that. It's, there is, it's not as simple Well, actually, I love
1: that you brought that up. Sorry, uh, Kathleen, but I love that you said Harry Potter because Harry Potter is, has made an entire franchise upon a franchise out of being able to be in it, right? You go to Harry Potter world and you go to the wizarding world of Harry Potter and you are sorted and you add yourself to a group and you buy all the paraphernalia that belongs to you and you get to belong. And… Part of, I think, what we're talking about here is the idea that some people who will watch and love Wakanda, uh, who will be thrilled by Black Panther, will feel like, well, but there's not a way for me to insert myself in this. Which and is, Which, which is, is fine. I was actually just thinking, I'm like, we're thinking about
0: white response to this movie maybe too much. <laughs> like, I'm like, are we, like, we're thinking so much about the white parents and their and their kids and and how they are going to respond to this movie which it's an important conversation and I and I hear you but I, I'm also like should they
1: be centered here? Well, I don't know if it is an important conversation. Like I'm going to be that person who I've seen the things, I've I've read the things online, but sometimes it's one of those things where you go where actually like who actually is having these conversations aside from uh, us sitting around having the conversation that we would be having.
0: No, I've, I wanted to make a point. Um, Duana, you said something about appreciation versus appropriation, and I think the important point there is about credit. You guys talk about this on Show Your Work all the time, and I think that when it comes to appreciation versus appropriation, you need to talk about who gets the credit if, you know, Lainey, you're wearing those gold earrings because of Okoye and because of you're inspired by Wakanda, that is who needs to be centered as everybody is wearing these gold earrings because of this kick-ass black woman. It's like, I think of Bieber, when Bieber started wearing dreads and then everybody was like, look at this cool new twisted hairstyle this guy made up. It's like, no, those are dreadlocks that… Black men have been wearing forever. Black women have been wearing forever. And been maligned for wear. And been maligned for it. But as soon as Bieber wears it, it's a, a, this amazing trend, right? Um, I think of the Kardashians and boxer braids. Like the Kardashians created cornrows. Again, a hairstyle that like I got made fun of for wearing when I was little. That black women get made fun of for and told that it's not professional in everyday mm-hmm. life, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that if these Wakandan uh, styles and hairstyles and clothing, if that gets taken away from Black Panther and that gets, you know, if uh, Gigi Hadid starts wearing it and then all of a sudden everybody
1: thinks that Gigi Hadid invented this, that's where we're going to get problems. So it's about the phrasing and the framing, right? It's not the, the hot new Gigi Hadid trend is what, the, is what the issue is here.
0: Well, it's the credit and I think then that changes because I don't think then if that If, like, um, Lapita's Wakanda knots, as they've been calling it, you'll see this hairstyle in the movie. If that then becomes a trendy hairstyle that is cool, that is respected, then that might trickle down to that woman who goes to work doesn't get maligned for her hairstyle. Her boss doesn't think that that's unprofessional anymore. Like, this is when we talk about representation matters, right? Like, I
1: think it does trickle down as long as that credit is there. So to take us to a place I did not expect <laughs> to go at all, um, does this mean that Black Panther should have more merchandising rather than less? Yes, yes, I think it does. Is, what are the? I don't know what the. But uh, uh, it also depends
0: what merchandise. I mean.
1: Well, so what is? What are the uh, the merchandising? Uh, what do we know has been on the market uh, that's sort of a Black Panther tie-in so far? Well, it's funny you ask this because I had a conversation with Kathleen about
2: merchandising the other day, and one of the things I've been looking for is Michael B. Jordan did this amazing interview. Um, oh, it was his 73 Questions in Vogue, and mm-hmm. he… I remember it well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you I do. watch it daily. <laughs> and he, at the end, I think he puts on a Killmonger hoodie, mm-hmm. and… It looked, okay, well, obviously it looked amazing on him. I don't know if it's going to look as amazing on me, but it's a great hoodie. And I've been online looking for this hoodie. I haven't been able to find it, but I have been looking at, like, whatever is available. And so I talked to Kathleen about this and I was like, listen, some of this merch is so great, but is it for me? I I want to know, I I don't want to offend, I also want to uphold and support. Um, As we have said in the ongoing conversation about intersectionality, sometimes the role of those who are privileged is to stand behind. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I think that many people who are well-intentioned are grappling with this. We're getting the emails, and we'll get to a couple of them later. We're getting the emails for from people who are in, like me, in my position. How can I support, and, I, and this is, I'm going to say this in the most, like, offensive or provocative way as possible. How can I support and pick and choose what I want to support and wear from Wakanda and Black Panther without, like, saying that I'm not actually an ally? I still want to be an ally. Well, I have
1: to actually stop you because I think we need to spell that out a little bit explain what you mean when you talk about picking and choosing. Because I think if we're not very explicit about that, it's easy to say, well, that's not me. I wouldn't do that. Well, picking and choosing is a bigger
2: conversation. But let's start here. Many, but let's start here. For people um, who have, you know, experience in racism and being maligned for their skin color, what is frustrating to them is that when people appropriate the things that black people or Asian people or indigenous people have made sexy and cool, that is not something that they can take off at the end of the day. It's actually their skin color. It's actually their clothing. It's actually their features.
1: Which is to say, if you are wearing cornrows as a fashion style, for example, uh, you get to do that and then the next day take them out. And not be the person who experiences what somebody who wears cornrows more often is experiencing.
2: Your identity is not permanently attached to it. Exactly. And they're not… Those two are not inextricably linked. That's right. And in in the constant evolution of perception and awareness that many people are engaged in, these are the things that you encounter. Like, would I have been able to say this 15 years ago? I wouldn't have understood the conversation, I don't think… But now, in hearing from people like you, Kathleen, and doing the reading, you understand, oh yeah, shit, what I just thought was a cool thing to wear on a Tuesday, other people have been arrested for, other people have been, like, fired for, as you were saying, and so, and they can't afford, or they just can't, like, biologically take it off. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So when we talk about merchandising, and when we talk about being inspired by… Where do like I think that's I don't know if we're gonna find an answer to this today, but I think some of the people who are out there with their questions, one of those questions is how can I avoid picking and choosing because I don't have to assume the consequences of being as dark skinned as Lupita Nyong'o, as uh, when I if I were to shave my head, for example, <laughs> like the, the, the Dora Malaje, there's a different kind of perception. Um, if I walk into a room with a shaved head, then uh, many Black women who walk into many spaces and they have a shaved head. Right now, at least, until Wakanda takes root.
0: Exactly. Yes, for sure. I think there's so much here, but taking it back to the Killmonger hoodie and what you're talking about with the, which, like taking taking it on and off. Killmonger, the villain that Michael B. Jordan plays, is so rooted in. No spoilers, but he's so rooted in some of the oppression that black men have faced and black women have faced in America that I actually do feel a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. with a non-black person, a non-black woman
1: putting on that
0: hoodie and like rocking it as a fashion statement yeah. and then taking it off and like throwing it on their floor when there is a line that Killmonger says in this movie that will, like, that directly references slavery, that will, like, sit with you in your gut for days, um, weeks. And because of what he represents and because of the conversations that he is going to spark, yeah, I
2: feel, I do feel weird about it. This is, this is the question, right? Like, uh, people are going to see the movie… Non black people are going to see the movie. Absolutely. The character is obviously super, super important. They're going to walk away from it saying, fucking Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger. Oh my God, what a badass. I love him so much. And then it'll be like, I love Killmonger, just like they say, I love Loki. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> or or, Wait, uh, or Kylo Ren or Fine. whatever. Fine. You know but what I mean? Also,
0: like, I, I, okay, so I do want Michael B. Jordan to be crushed on and, and revered and people to thirst for him like they thirst for Tom Hiddleston and... Sorry, again, who?
2: <laughs> thirst for Tom Hiddleston? I love... Tom Hiddleston who plays Loki. People no, know. there's a thing. I love that Duanna had to work in some shade there. I
0: just <laughs> can't. Or like Adam Driver, which I do not get, but okay. I Kylo get Ren. him as
2: Kylo Ren. Yeah, I mean, I'm closer on that one.
0: But, so, Michael B. Jordan, I want him as much as like he is mine and I will marry him and like all y'all back off. I want him to be held up as that sex symbol as well. A universal sex symbol. As a universal sex symbol. Absolutely. But at the same time, again, going back to this character and going back to what it represents and the work that Ryan Coogler put in to make sure that this villain sparked a conversation directly about race, I think that the good thing is that these conversations will happen. The bad thing is... Like Lainey said, I have like these like horrible, these horrors in my head thinking of ignorant white men running
2: around being like, oh, killmonger's the best. Woo! And just not getting it. I have a story to tell you. It's not my proudest story, but back in the 80s, when, yes, Kathleen, you were very young, or maybe not even around. I'm so young. <laughs> um <laughs> There was um, a fashion trend, which was, and you see it in like back in the day, like the Queen Latifah videos from back in the day and the hip-hop videos where they wore like leather medallions with Africa on them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I used to walk around with <laughs> a leather Africa medallion.
1: Like it was from the mall and it was like a, a, a yellow, red, and green stripe. Correct.
2: Yes. I right. I
1: know this now. <laughs> Yes, my um, older brother had one, yes.
2: And I'm going to be that dick. Like, I will call myself out because I think it's important. Like, this is where it starts or this is what the problem is. is many of my friends were black Canadians and we were very close. Um, and obviously, the music we listened to was hip-hop. I wanted to fit in with them. I admired them. I wanted to look cool. And so, like, I went to parties and went to school wearing this medallion. I, like, (laughs) I cringe thinking about this, but I do think that this is, as an adult now, of course I wouldn't do that. And, you know, I saw Michael B. Jordan in Vogue 73 Questions wearing that Killmonger sweatshirt without knowing the backstory of Killmonger, having not seen the movie yet. So, yes, Kathleen, I looked at it as a fashion statement. Like, that's just a really dope sweatshirt. Mm -hmm. I would like to think that later today, after I see the film and after I appreciate the roots of his character, that I would have said to myself, nuh-uh, not for you. I, is there a 16-year-old out there like me back in the 80s and 90s who can and, make and, that
0: call? But I, wa- I want to say something about this idea of, again, back to representation. If I have grown up in a pop cu- in a pop culture landscape that centered whiteness my whole life, We all do. Anyone who's, like, a non-white person has had to live in that pop culture landscape. And so if I want to, like, put up blackness that is revered in the same way and um, glorified in the same way, then, you know, I had to look up to characters who didn't look like me all the time. I had to, you know, wear... uh, I mean, for like a current reference, my niece dresses up as Anna from Frozen all the time, right? Like she's had to put herself in this this world that doesn't reflect her. So to me, it's kind of like if you're hanging out with a bunch of black kids and they're wearing the Queen Latifah African medallion because that's that's what's cool and that's what their center is and then you're there and you're in with them, I understand why it's problematic, but I'm also kind of like, Okay, that was just your that was just your experience and and your your and your that was your authentic group
2: and that was what was cool. But they like I wasn't getting pulled over.
0: Yeah, but okay, but it's yes, not absolutely, but as a 16-year-old, you're you're not as a 16-year-old that isn't what you're thinking, especially, I think my, my, the reason why I don't think this is as problematic as, like, I feel like this isn't a thing you need to apologize <laughs> to me for, is because you were surrounded by black people, right? You were in this group that this is what you guys were doing. It wasn't like you, do you know, do you know what I'm trying, but am I making and sense here? But bits and pieces of this Maybe.
1: are, but bits and pieces of this are, uh, we're talking about a platonic ideal that we haven't reached yet, Right. In an ideal world, what we're looking for is for kids and adults of all ages, races, stages to adore Killmonger, think he's amazing. For your niece to have a plethora of characters to select from who she admires, many of whom look like her and represent her, and some of whom she is able to put herself in the the place of whether or not they have a, a similar physicality or a similar... Emotionality, right? Like, obviously, mm-hmm. her identification with Anna is because she thinks she's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and that what I, what ultimately what we're getting at is we want to be in a place, and these are kind of little elements, the stories that we tell about in imperfect ways where we've done it, where we're admiring everybody and having examples of people that we can look at who do and don't look like us, right? Who And your point, I think, Kathleen, is that that's been the only option for people of color, for people who are black, for people who are Asian or Indian or whatever. The only option up to now has been, well, you know, you better identify with some trait that's not physicality because there's not that physical option for you. But when you say, is a 16-year-old going to be that sensitive, Elaine, I kind of go... Mm, they're, they're figuring out the way that they will relate to each of these characteristics. They're figuring out their own relationship with, with culture and, and appreciation versus appropriation and all those things. And I don't think we're trying to construct a world in which everybody is perfectly respectful all the time, but in which everybody has kind of an authentic journey uh, pardon the the woo-woo talk, to to coming to the place where where we are now, hopefully, which is learning and discovering all the time. Yes. Well, exactly. let me go
2: here. Let me go here then and we'll make Yasik's yeah, eyes roll and wait for it. Let's talk then about Hamilton.
1: I knew it. Yes, go.
2: So there was a conversation uh, a couple of years ago. Hamilton had come out, the hottest show on Broadway. Everybody loved it. And uh, there was some sort of audition, y- uh, yeah. right? There was some sort of audition. Uh, there was some sort of audition.
1: There was <laughs> a casting call for the touring and London companies of Hamilton. Right. Uh, because the show was massive and was about to be ten times more massive. That's right. And in the casting
2: call, it said, people of color only. That's right. Because that is the primary
1: feature of the production. It's one of the… Conceits of the show, right? That there are people of color playing real historical figures who were white. That's right, except for King George. So the casting call goes out
2: and people, some people, get upset. Yeah. You wrote a post about this on our site, and the crux of your post is some things
1: are not for you. Yeah. But I think, too, sorry, Kathleen, too, yeah, some things are not for you, but also. I think it is natural to want them to be. I think it is natural for every young person who aspires to be anything to look at any hero and wish it was them. I think lots of young girls who grew up watching Star Wars wish they could be Luke Skywalker and sort of fit themselves awkwardly into being a Princess Leia or the token girl. I think it is natural to look at the biggest show on Broadway or the biggest blockbuster movie of the weekend of the year, maybe, and say... Oh, I want to be that. I wish I was that. But there's a difference between wanting to be that and wishing it could be for you and demanding that the rules and walls change so that you can be that. Because again, that's not something that people of color were able to do for a very long time.
0: No. And I agree that, that Hamilton in the casting was for people of color specifically and not for white people except for King George. But I think that Lin-Manuel Miranda... How are you doing, Uh, Yasek? (laughs) Lin-Manuel Miranda thought of white people when he was making Hamilton. I think that he thought of, um, you know, the uppity Broadway goers and how they were going to react to seeing people of color in these historically white roles in a way that I don't think Ryan Coogler considered the reaction of white people. I don't think he considered... Um, that audience at all when he was making Black Panther. When you see this movie, you'll be like, oh, like, there white people. are, are going to be times in this movie that white people are watching it and feel uncomfortable. Now, and I think that that is part of why maybe Black Panther, in a way that Hamilton isn't, is like a, this is not, this potentially is not for you. Right? Like, I think... There was not really a conversation of who gets to go see Hamilton. Like, there's a conversation about who gets to go see Black Panther
1: in the same way. Can you elaborate a little bit on the conversation about who gets to go see Black Panther?
0: Okay. So, well, we got an email. Let me start with the email. So, we got an, or I got an email. um, And the subject was, should white people go see Black Panther on opening weekend? And (laughs) I get a lot of emails sometimes (laughs) where it's like, uh, you know, they're just asking me questions that, uh, because they have no black people in their lives, and I'm like the one black person that they know of. So sometimes I just like roll my eyes at them, and I'm like, oh, okay, here's another one <laughs> from Susie in Saskatchewan asking me like her black question. But this... <laughs> but this email, I'm going to read it. This is from Summer. Uh, so she asked, uh, A question has come up in some, quote, unpacking white privilege, anti-racism Facebook groups that I'm a part of regarding whether or not white people should go see Black Panther on opening weekend. Argument for to add our financial support to the movie to encourage better representation and to see an awesome movie. Argument against because opening weekend shows are going to be primarily black spaces, hugely meaningful to black audiences, and our presence would be an intrusion into that.
1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: So this is, this is the conversation. This is the question she's asking. I actually think that question is considerate. It's thoughtful. I am not like rolling my eyes at this question. What's your answer? <laughs> oh God. Okay. My answer is... There are so few spaces for black people and people of color, but I want to be specific here. We talk about specificity a lot. I want to be specific because Black Panther is very specific to black people. Um, There are so few places and spaces that, you know, we're not dealing with microaggressions. We're not dealing with overt racism. We're not dealing with just all of the crap, right? And so we talk a lot about... uh, these spaces just for black people to kind of have this break from everything else. And I think that opening weekend of Black Panther, in a lot of places, that is going to be that space. And so I understand, and it's like, I went opening night, people are dressed to the nines, they're wearing their kente cloth, they're wearing African prints. It's like, it's a beautiful, it feels like a, a community thing. So I understand not wanting to encroach on that space. At the same time, I want everyone to see this movie. There are times, like, there's, like, a big thesis in this film, again, no spoilers, about how much of Wakanda they're going to show to the rest of the world. There's this conversation about how much uh, of the strength of blackness and the intelligence that, that Wakanda is going to show to the rest of the world. So when watching this movie, I was kind of like, yo, people have never seen Africans depicted in this way. And like, everyone gets to see this. It was kind of like a secret. I'm like, everyone is going to get to see these black women depicted in a, in a way that like, they reflect the black women I know in my life. And but that have never been seen on screen. So I want everybody to see this movie. I want white people to see it. I want everyone to be there and to see it and to experience it. I think to directly go back to Summer's question, I think it's about knowing your place in that space. I read something on Twitter where, you know, a white person shushed a group of black people at her screening of Black Panther. No. (laughs) No. That's where we needed the camera. (laughs) No. That's a no. That's going to be a no for me. Right? No. (laughs) How many times can I say no? Right? That is... So, if you're going to go to these screenings on opening weekend, if you live in a place, you know, some, especially across Canada, there's going to be some screenings of Black Panther that actually don't have any black people in them because (laughs) of where you are. Right? But if you are... In a community where there is a lot of black people and you go to the screening and you are a white person, you need to just know your place. You like quietly go in, you sit down, you watch the movie, you leave. You don't have to shush. Like if Black people want to yell in this movie, if they want to clap, if they want to just experience their joy in whatever way, let us have this. I think that's my answer. I like, yeah, go see it support this movie. Not that, like, Disney really needs our money that much, right? Like, it's not like you're giving to a Black Lives Matter group. Like, it's, I don't want, you know, white people to pat themselves on the back that much for for giving their money to Black Panther. Like, oh, I, I did a thing for the black community by giving my money to Black Panther. It's not the same. Go see this movie. Enjoy it. It's an amazing superhero movie. I just think that you need to know your place in these spaces.
1: The other thing about that, and is that uh, please, when you're reading about these conversations online, when you're debating whether or not you want to see this movie at which time or whatever, please look at the things that you see on social media with a hefty grain of salt. Because, of course, there are trolls who are already intent on saying that there are things going on at screenings that are absolutely not going on, violence and other accusations of things that are made to divide that are being consistently and rapidly proven to be false, but at the risk of minimizing conversations, please don't make this into a more contentious situation than it is. Uh, when you talk about, I want everybody to see this movie, it is ultimately an entertaining piece of joy Mm -hmm. that people want to experience. Please do not read some of these things and go like, oh yeah, this is maybe dangerous. This is maybe political. There are elements in which it is political. (laughs) (laughs) It is also a superhero movie.
2: But yeah, as as you said, this is a superhero movie that's going to give a lot of people a lot of joy and make a lot of people a lot of money, which… To go back to your point, Kathleen, I get it. You know, Disney doesn't need the money and going to see Black Panther as a non-person of color, non-black person doesn't mean that suddenly, you know, you are all supporting Black Lives Matter. However, there can be long-term social effects from what Black Panther is about to do. A record-breaking movie like this that makes this kind of money internationally, already domestically, but internationally is going to be one of the biggest arguments against that fallacy that projects and entertainment pieces and uh, uh, movies and, and whatnot that star people of color, buy people of color, are not profitable. This is the the slam dunk in your face, the cake smush in, in someone's face that you can answer back. But not only that, it will perhaps start an even bigger, stronger movement to make the sequel.
0: Exactly. But the, well, I want to say, though, to that, that's… I was kind of trying to say that I don't want this to be, like, seen as charity. Like, in that email, she was like, I'm going to give my money and not go see it. Yeah. As, like, let me just give my money and not go support this movie. To directly combat the conversation about these movies won't do well internationally or, like, non-black people aren't going to want to see it, go sit in the theater and watch this movie and enjoy it. And then talk about how much you enjoyed it and understand that it's an incredible movie, hands down, no matter what.
2: Duan, are you okay? Because you're punching the air. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what's happening over there? Yeah.
2: <laughs> now you, you're you holding, now Duanna is holding the bridge of her nose with her uh, left hand, now uh, running her fingers <laughs> through her hair um, in seeming frustration, taking deep breaths because I, I don't know, what's what's going to happen? You breathing fire? I don't know what's happening. Yeah. What's happening? Like, I.
1: This is very theatrical. I'm not… I'm just trying to create a cogent thought that will flow seamlessly into our conversation, everyone. We don't want cogent. We just want whatever is building up in there. I just… This is where we have problems. I… Please… Look, I am so… I'm frustrated because… uh people implying that maybe giving money but not seeing the movie uh, would be helpful is missing the point, again, that this is entertainment. And I don't want to take away from our very important discussion that we're having about representation and the sort of political elements of what we're seeing and the world that Ryan Coogler created. But if you don't want to go and see this movie and be entertained, you are maintaining the incorrect assumption that there are certain types of entertainment that only work for some people. That there are white people who can't be entertained by a movie that is created by people of color in front of and behind the scenes. Like, this is bananas to me that you could look at something and say, oh, but no, but they're not going to be able to speak to me, so maybe I just, uh, maybe, uh, you know, I'll give the money to, as you say, Kathleen, in a in a charitable fashion, uh, but that I don't want to. No, I want to see it. I want to have my fun. I want to watch something that is patently not about me or for me and still be as delighted and entertained and excited by it because ultimately this is what entertainment is. Because ultimately this is what fiction is for, right? It's about taking very, very specific stories and showing how universal they are. It's about having stories that seem as though they cannot possibly relate to the entire world, and then selling massive, massive numbers around the world. This is the whole point, and I I sometimes am surprised, and I hold my nose and I hold my hair, uh, to find that this is the point that people are missing. Mm Mm-hmm. Go off, Duana. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Well… We
2: are all going to go in moments to see Black Panther together. It's a 10-person team. Um, All of us come from different backgrounds. Some of us are parents. Some of us are not parents. Some of us are a certain age. Some of us are much younger than that certain age. I'm so young. That is (laughs) who… Yes, Kathleen. (laughs) That is, you know what our group is going to be as audience members going to see Black Panther and some of us will be able to relate to that story some of us will not be able to relate to that story personally but we can take something away from it to your point duana like it is an entertainment piece to your point duana it is a piece of entertainment that 10 of us are going to be enjoying in a couple of hours and
1: in carefully formatted uh, rows, uh, Laney <laughs> mm-hmm. texted me, "How should I stage the tickets? Where do I buy one line, several lines, a block?
2: You had sp- and you had very pointed opinions about. Yes, I, yes. I feel strongly. You about did them. not want the one row situation. Nope. You wanted two rows in a block yep. so that people could like look behind them, throw food, you know, lean forward, kick someone's seat." Whatever.
0: Who gets to sit beside me and hear my sobs and my screams? Well, you've
2: made it through this entire podcast so far without crying, which I have to say I'm quite (laughs) impressed. Um, Anyway, my point is, is that the 10 of us are going all together. We are all different people. Um, We are not all people of color. And I think that, you know, to round out this discussion, I hope that we are not the only group that looks like that that is bringing a different experience with each audience member. And I also really can't wait for the conversations that we'll be having after we see the movie. And hopefully that is one of the bonuses of the movie too. Go see the movie. It's going to be a great movie and you're going to have a good time. But then after, you get to extend that time by examining and interrogating some of the things that Ryan Coogler is asking you to examine and interrogate. And ultimately, like, that's what art is. And that's why this is such great
0: art and why it's the best Marvel superhero movie. Sarah, who is a Marvel nerd, she co-signs this. We agree it is the best and it is going to, like you just said, Lainey, start so many more conversations. We just had a really long conversation about this movie and you guys haven't even seen it yet. There are so many more conversations to be had and so many questions. I'm going to get a lot more emails about all of the, the black questions people have after they see this movie because there's so many more questions and conversations and that's why it's great art. That's why I am so impressed with Ryan Coogler's work and the whole team's work on this movie because it's, it sparks conversations and it's incredible.
2: Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Can I say this? Wakanda forever? Wakanda forever! <laughs> Wakanda forever.
0: That is how I will sign off at all times, all the time. Wakanda forever.
2: So our second story today is um, something you pitched me, Anna, which is an interview that uh, Glenn Mazzara, who um, is a showrunner, um, did with Variety. And it's an, it's an interview about how, not just for the last six months, but for much longer than that, for several years now, he has been one of the leading voices pushing for change in the business, more equality, more diversity, more representation.
1: Yeah, specifically, uh, he's seen as a really powerful agent of change in what we would consider to be uh, high-profile, high-end TV, right? Uh, Glenn Mazzara uh, was on The Shield, uh, was sort of a real seminal force on The Walking Dead, uh, was Damien. Uh, And so that's sort of the perspective of where he's coming from, which is to say he speaks as a he's a middle-aged white man. Uh, What's middle age anymore? Like, when do you stop being that? Uh, He's a middle-aged white man who works on shows that are beloved mostly by white men. Um, And so that's what's interesting about uh, the position he comes from, Mm -hmm. uh, talking about some of these things, that he is uh, a voice that maybe you don't expect to be one of the leading voices.
2: I, I really enjoyed this interview and I, I learned a lot from it and I had questions coming out of it. It's an extensive interview, but there's so much work in here. And what he also does is he paints a pretty accurate picture about how complicated this whole issue is. How many what's the expression? How many hands are in the pot? What sure.
1: Like yeah. cooks in the
2: kitchen kind of thing. That that's right. Sure. How um how this is not a simple problem to fix, how conversations have to, how conversations have to happen in all rooms, that they've been happening in certain rooms, um, but even coming out of those rooms, let's say his writer's rooms, there's still the network or the studio or the whatever that you have to take your decisions to and the pushback that you're getting, not just from the studios, but from other showrunners and from other people on the set. So I really, I really do think that this is a, a nuanced conversation that he's had here in describing the challenges in the industry and in all industries, and also a really good um, understanding here of, of how Hollywood works from a management perspective.
1: Right. So specifically, he is talking about his role and job. Uh, as a showrunner relating to other writers that he manages and relating to the networks and studios that hire him to create and to run these high-end scripted shows. That's sort of the perspective where he's coming from. Uh, And one of the quotes that's kind of halfway through the article, but that I think is a pretty great thesis, is he says, uh, my role is to listen to people, my role is to help. My role is to provide the forum for other people to tell their stories and be exist uh, supportive of an existing movement, uh, but most importantly to me, this phrase that I loved is he says, "My job is to help fellow male writers and showrunners work out their issues and try to change." That's a lot to to take on himself. I thought that was really interesting. I did too, and
2: I I I, I appreciated that voice. And I I go back to the email that you sent me pitching this story, and you're like. Oh, the the double edged sword here is: do we need to be complimenting this guy, but at the same time, because he's a white cis male, is he going to be able to affect that change and have more people listen to him? You know what I mean? Like, it's there's there's that uh, frustration there as well. I guess I I don't know if that's the right word to use, but and I hear I heard your point. Like, that is a really really good point. Um, but I, I think that most people can agree that for real change to take hold, more people like Glenn have to take and adopt that attitude.
1: So tell me, you said there was a lot of work in this article that you really liked. Tell me about one of the things that struck you. So he said a couple of times that before he became a
2: writer and now a showrunner, he worked in a hospital for 13 years in, um, on the administrative side. So he kept saying, like, I have management skills. I know what managing is. And he said that a lot of times showrunners, especially new showrunners, they're hired for their creativity and for being able to write and create worlds and characters. They're
1: not necessarily hired for their management skills. No, and… But they are managers. Oh, they're definitely managers, maybe more than some. I know we've talked a little bit about this, but the culture of a writer's room is as follows. Uh, The show is staffed or hired based on who the showrunner wants, and that's it. Every showrunner builds their room differently, but after meeting with a bunch of writers and reading their writing, a showrunner decides what balance of voices will help the room who they would like to help tell their stories. Sometimes they fill in the gaps that they think they themselves have. Uh, Oh, I'm not so strong on this, so it'll be great to have somebody who is. And arguably most importantly, uh, showrunners choose people who they want to be in a room with. Uh, There are all kinds of kind of sub- stories about how this works, but working in a writer's room literally means sitting around a table all day, every day, and talking about your life and your friends' lives and uh, mining everybody you know for stories, and then fitting them into the stories you're trying to tell on your show. So if there are personality conflicts or an inexperienced manager, as you point out, or whatever. Those are problems that show up a lot faster there mm-hmm. than if you are an inexperienced manager, uh, I don't know, at a, at a food testing lab, for example.
0: Because
1: yeah. you're talking to and about each other all day. And I, I
2: found this fascinating from the perspective of, you know, work because, yeah, creatives are often terrible managers.
1: Well, there's no management training. Like, you know, if you have a great boss, you might take what they, you might take something they say with you. You know, I kind of try to make a point when I work with a showrunner of taking something from every situation, uh, even if it's somebody I don't otherwise really love. I also try when I'm in the position of working with writers that I've hired to, To remember those things and pass those on and to try and create an atmosphere where uh, you're not just being a dictator, but it's always kind of feeling your way blind. There is no management training for being this person.
2: Well, the real world application to this is that it's not just a problem that exists in the entertainment industry, but creatives across all industries. I think about tech. You can have a genius programmer coder who gets brought on And naturally, the evolution or the rise for any employee is to start to become more senior into executive positions. Now, that person might have been an amazing coder or whatever. I mean, like, fuck, I don't know what the words are. Um, But once they get onto the top floor into that corner office, are they a good manager? There have been a lot of stories about someone like Steve Jobs, for instance, great visionary had great ideas. Many people, and there have been books written about this, many people would tell you he wasn't a great manager. Um, the ideas were amazing, but were his team fulfilled in their jobs? right? Could he could was he focused on bringing in people and putting them in places and spaces where they could achieve their full potential? We don't even have to go as high as Steve Jobs. For those of you listening, I'm sure that you've had experience in law, in accounting, in wherever you work, where someone's really good at the creative aspect and however that applies in your industry, but their management skills were
1: lacking. And I think what happens there, of course, is, as you say, people get promoted, uh, and then there's not, how do you get better? How do you do that? I think one of the ways, and this is one of the things that's most interesting, I think, about this Mazzara interview is in looking at ways where you might've made a mistake, not being afraid to say that. So I had the pleasure of hearing Glenn Mazzara speak a couple of years ago at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. Uh, and he was talking about anti-heroes. And I will be honest and say that I was not Overly enthusiastic about listening to uh, I mean, antiheroes are uh, you know, your Tony Soprano, your Don Draper, your kind of uh Walter White. Yeah, complicated and twisty uh people who are often men. And somewhere along the conversation, he started talking about one of the reasons why we don't see women anti-heroes that much is because. Often there are people who have done less thinking about women anti-heroes who don't think that women characters can have a primal wound, like a real thing they're trying to fix, like Tony Soprano's mother didn't love him or Don Draper's childhood was terrible, uh, except for rape. And just to have a real cheery conversation, Uh he was talking about how, There are a lot of men who feel like if you want to make a female character complicated, you have to bring in some sort of sexual violence to her life because that's what they understand as being the worst thing Mm -hmm. possible. Uh, And there are women going, not really. There are other things. Women can be hurt by other things and women can be complicated without having been victims of sexual violence and… They can have daddy and mommy issues too, Don Draper. Well, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And… But that he was coming from a place of having kind of listened and realized, oh, maybe I've been barking up a wrong tree all this time. Uh, And then wanting to change that in in the minds of other people and other writers that he works with. So that's an example of going, oh, I was wrong too at one point. And here's me trying to change it. And again, this is the kind of crux of the conversation of, oh, like we knew this, but oh, now because a a successful white showrunner who's 50 says it, now it's considered to be, you know, a kosher point of view. But this is what helps change things, right? Is somebody who is a proven maker let's say, Mm -hmm. echoing things that we already know to be true and saying that they are listening. But the place where he really won my heart, I have to say, uh, in the same conversation is when he talked about how this is also the reason why so many writers, male and female, uh, and it's not just writers, but uh, it stems a lot from writers, want to show how tough and strong and not like a woman their female characters are by giving them male names. How many Mm -hmm. characters have you seen? How many kick-ass characters do we know called Andy? And it's like, oh, she's really named Andrea, but she's Andy or Sam or Georgie or those kinds of names that imply, well, it's okay to think that she's tough and cool because her name is kind of tough and cool like a man's. Uh, you know, one of the great things about Laney Gossip is that we all do different things and have different interests and that there are people listening to the podcast who may never care at all about the fact that I rant about names uh, in another part of the website, but these are the kinds of points where it is more than just about what people want for their baby names. This is where you kind of go, okay, this is somebody who understands that everything about how we see characters on screen affects how we think of characters in our lives and how we think of women and people of color and women of color and see them as fully formed characters or only give them the nod, only give them the authenticity when they tick the boxes that we think they do. You saying that, um,
2: well, I mean, I feel like Shonda Rhimes is always hovering over this podcast, (laughs) but… You saying that and our previous conversation about management and effective management makes me think of Shonda Rhimes. We've talked before, and I know we don't have to repeat it, but about how an effective, how effective she is as a manager um, and how she's proven uh, in her management skills to um, allow other people to learn or into better their own management skills. But when we are talking about antiheroes and how women can can be or should be antiheroes, and also have them be as complicated and not have that not have that one issue um, that is understandable to men being their whatever right their formative
1: their vulnerability f- or that's whatever. right
2: um, and related to names. Think about the names that she gives her characters. They're not like, you're not getting a Dylan female or a Michael female. You're getting Annalise. Yep. And Christina. Olivia. Yep. These are names that have, for the most part, been feminine names. Absolutely. Women names. Um, And all of these characters that we just listed, Annalise Keating, I mean, like, you don't get more fucked up and complicated than Annalise. Right. And, of
1: course, Annalise Keating was created by Pete Nowak, who came up under Shonda Rhimes and was trained in her world and, you know, benefited from, as you say, her, her management. yes. But the other thing about Shonda Rhimes being a great manager or Glenn Mazzara being a great manager is that it is, one of the reasons it's notable to talk about is that it is so not required. Nobody cares. And this is kind of the problem. And this is kind of what you're talking about when you reference that there are managers in the bigger world outside of entertainment who have never managed before. But this is especially true in entertainment, and it's one of the reasons that we continue to talk about the culture of it. Nobody cares if you're nice if your show is a hit. Nobody cares if you are a good manager who grows other writers if you have the winning time slot all the time. One of the things that Glenn Mazzara talks about in this interview that we're discussing in this Variety interview is that he thinks television seasons should have exit interviews Mm -hmm. and say, how did it go? And how was it? That's unheard of. It is bananas. And he says other showrunners are afraid of this idea. And he is trying to create some sort of regulation and, you know, as you say, like, management training. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's so… he doesn't need to. It is not required of him or something that… or it's something that people expect of a showrunner at his level. And he's doing it purely out of a desire to make the industry better.
2: Well, what I like about his point about exit interviews is he goes on to talk about HR. um, And he then broadens it out from the entertainment industry to all industries, because, of course, he came from hospital administration. And he talked about these exit interviews that do exist in other industries that the entertainment industry doesn't have, which is a fair point. But then he goes on to say, but you know what? In other industries, the HR departments are failing too, and they're failing in Hollywood. Uh, You want to believe that HR is there to help you. That… That is the one department that will give you respite and protection from your boss. And, and yet. And yet, how many of you out there have felt that you've been let down by your HR? Um, that the HR was also worried about the legal ramifications. That they're protecting the company. That's right. And listen, if you're in HR out there, nobody wants to dump on you. Again, you probably are also handcuffed by the upstairs, by the shareholders. And so uh, to go back to what I said at the beginning about Glenn doing a great job of rounding out this conversation, he's not pointing the finger at one person. What he's saying is that at every level, in every industry, in every department, there has to be systemic change because you can't just change one area, the writer's room, and have that change be reflected without the senior level executives in the studios changing and without the HR departments changing and without the accounting department changing.
1: Absolutely. And it's kind of charming to me that the most creatively successful people within Hollywood, the ones who are the biggest, uh, you know, ratings draws, are the ones who are saying, actually, let's bring in some of the methodology from the outside. Actually, let's Mm -hmm. bring in some respect for the workers From the outside, we don't need to live like it's 1930s at Metro-Goldwyn-Ware anymore. Um, It's very entertaining that it's the biggest showrunners who are saying, you know what, there's a way to do this that is more equitable and fair and also better for the show. Because everybody who's happier does better work and makes better shows.
2: Yep. And, you know, to go back to what I said about all departments needing to change, I stand by that. But… But at the same time, 100%, for those of you are out there thinking, yes, but change also needs to be at the top, for sure. Glenn is at the top of his pond, and he is the change maker there. Those at the top of their, their own ponds, 100%, all of the top people in the ponds have to make make that top-down decision to commit to change because that HR person… Who wants to advocate for the employee who has come forward to offer complaints about harassment or an inequality? There are so many of them out there who can't do that, who can't do their jobs because the CEO is like, "Yeah, but I don't want to piss off that guy. He's my my star." And and Glenn talks about that actually uh, from an all industry wide perspective. What does he call them? The um, the big swingers. The uh, you know that expression he uses. Mm. Um, it comes from Silicon Valley, I think he says, Um, the big swingers, the hit makers. Is it hit makers? The playmakers, right? And a lot of times in every business, once you become a playmaker, the business is structured from the top down to allow you to do whatever you want.
1: That's scary
2: for everybody who's not the playmaker.
1: Right. And the reason why is because these are businesses that are notoriously... Uh, hard to navigate, right? Like nobody knows how to mis- make a hit in Hollywood or there would be hits and Rob Lowe wouldn't be on new shows every year. Yeah. Uh, nobody knows how to make hit movies or they wouldn't spend $250 million on movies that turn out to be flops. Similarly, in Silicon Valley, there are things that are supposed to be huge successes that turn out not to be, uh, see the segue uh, as an example. So when somebody is a playmaker. When Mm -hmm. somebody hits the jackpot, everybody kind of goes, well, uh, I don't know, like the last 10 times we tried this, it failed. So let's just get out of this person's way and let them do whatever it is they're going to do. And when it's done right, that looks like Shonda Rhimes getting a nine-figure deal Mm -hmm. at Netflix and, or Shondaland getting a nine-figure deal at Netflix. And when it's not, it allows cultures of abuse or neglect or just poor management to run rampant. I guess the question that we all have to work
2: on then related to management and playmakers is how you get to the point where you allow your playmakers to be playmakers, but you still manage the playmaker.
1: And I guess it's about confidence, right? It's the things we've been checking in on all, all through this episode are about having the confidence to... Feel good about the direction you're going and the decisions you're making, but also feeling secure enough to check yourself and see where you've made mistakes and where you can do better. He talks about how the showrunner of The Shield, and this was 20 years ago, would say, so what can we do better this year? What was not so well? How can we make this better than we did last year? And Of course, that's supposed to be on screen, but also not. That was Sean Ryan was the creator of The Shield, who he talks about doing that. Uh, And so I guess it's about modeling and also about humility. Being willing to check your own stuff makes everything better. It doesn't make you look bad. It makes you look better as you go forward.
2: And finally, this season we've somehow, and I think it's been accidental, but maybe not because we should credit ourselves for the work, but we've been ending on like a story that really amuses us, still related to work, but it's one of those that is makes us giggle.
1: I mean, yeah, look, there are all kinds of confluences of things we love that come together in a story like this. But if this story had been not about work at all, I still think you would have been hectoring me for the last four days. <laughs> have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? Have you read it yet?
2: Yeah. So um, the Olympics are happening right now. Uh, and there have been a few articles remembering the past Winter Olympics, which happened in Sochi. I completely forgot about this until Vulture did an oral history of how Bob Costas, <laughs> Bob Costas broadcasted from Sochi with not one pink eye, but two. Like, it was a double pink eye situation. I completely forgot until I read this oral history, and I was screaming. I'm I'm not trying to laugh at the fact that he had an eye infection, like that's terrible and I get it, but I was screaming at the details in, like, because it's not just Bob, but Meredith Vieira is speaking here and remembering the situation because she had to fill in for Bob a couple times and the, you know, the head producer's decision of when to finally pull Bob and Bob saying that it wasn't their decision, it was his decision. He insists, how many times does Bob... Costas, in this oral history, insists that he was the one who made the call to take himself out of the game, um, and he d- offers all kinds of baseball analogies. This, this whole interview is a fucking scream.
1: Well, I mean, what's hilarious about that is that he is contradicted within the email <laughs> uh, or within the article where somebody else says, uh, you know, it was not hard to make the decision to pull him off screen. So to be clear, they got to Sochi… And uh, his eye infection showed up very soon afterwards. (laughs) People started commenting on it. He wore glasses to try and hide it. It didn't work. It spread to the other eyes. Like, he was off the air. And the reason this is such a big deal, of course, is because he had, at that point, been the nighttime anchor for, I think it was 10 Olympics in a row. And that is… He was the face of NBC Olympics. But that was like at least 20 years of having been the anchor, right? A long, long time. And this is unprecedented. And one of the things he says is like, you go on, like the show must go on essentially is what he says. Like you go on with a broken leg and hide it under the desk. Right. Go on with a stomach ache. But because it's your eyes. You know, (laughs) it's hard to hide. And so we cannot really though have this conversation… Uh, without discussing maybe the reason that you have such a personal connection to it.
2: <laughs> well, I didn't think that we needed to go there, but since you asked, uh, I had my own eye infection.
1: <laughs> How long's it been now? What is the anniversary?
2: The anniversary is September 2016, okay. so it was a year and a half ago. It was during the Toronto International Film Festival.
1: Yeah, so you see the parallels
2: here. <laughs> where i was working for etalk covering the red carpet and interviewing celebrities and directors and actors like tom ford with the most massive like deformity on my
1: eye like you thought it was a sty at first or a pimple is what happened right it started as a sty and it became something else i don't know that was like <laughs> it, it, one of the things I love about you is that you have commemorated it with uh, photos. Uh, we have decorated it in, <laughs> like, photo editing and painting. Yes. Uh, it, is, it is its own legend. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I cannot shake that, of course, one of the reasons that you relate to this story is in terms of how to work around something that is so visible when a part of your job is your face. Yes. I, like Bob Costas, wore glasses.
2: Um, I, listen, his is worse, way worse, because his pink eye made it so that his eyes kept tearing up and the lights in the studio affected that. And he just couldn't keep his eyes open. I could keep my eyes open just fine. There was no pain. I just had like a boil, like an enormous boil on my eye. So it was really just cosmetic. It was about trying not to gross out the viewers uh, and trying not to turn sideways, because the minute I turned sideways, you could see like there was a mountain on my eye. There was a protrusion from my face. That said, here's what I will say. My thing wasn't contagious. Pink
1: eye is highly contagious. Highly contagious. Okay, but now I have to… Yes, okay, pink eye is highly contagious, but I think this was a an eye infection that was not necessarily pink eye. Pink eye is conjunctivitis, right? And… I once had what I thought was going to be pink eye a few, uh, a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go to that party. Like I have this, I have that. And somebody sort of rolled their eyes at me and was like, get yourself some of the Visine pink eye drops and get over yourself. And to their credit, uh, it it was dealt with 24 hours later. I think if you have a very simple viral pink eye, that that's one thing. This was something else. Could have been contagious. His... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. But, (laughs) yeah, okay, but... (laughs) To go back
2: to my germaphobe point, could have been contagious.
1: But I guess it... Yes, it could have been contagious. And, you know, shout out to the makeup artists who were patting him down, uh, trying to disguise it, I'm sure. But I don't know if it was that contagious nobody else was out for two weeks with this eye infection. Well, thank God. But,
2: like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm reading this and I was torn because there's one part of me that says, okay, there's one part of me that says, okay, it's, it's the Olympics. For Bob Costas, that's every two years, right? Because he covers the summer and the winter and it's a big deal. So of course, anybody who's facing down like something that you've waited for, you've trained for, you've practiced for, you've done the research, you don't want to step down from that. I get it. At the same time, It's contagious. So if you go down and you take other people down with you, there's not going to be a show. I I I was really I listen. I don't know if what I would have done in the same situation, but at the same time, if I was in the situation, it would have been my first Olympics. What you just said, he's done like 10 or 12 Olympics. Skip the one Olympics so that not everybody gets pink eye. But they didn't get pink
1: eye. They didn't like, and if they had, you can't justify that from the after the fact. What do you mean? What? I, that is actual evidence. Like, had there been a pink eye outbreak, I think it would have been noted at the end of this article.
2: I don't know. I, I, I wonder if I was on staff, I would have been like, I don't want the fucking pink eye. Like, you know, let's just bring in Meredith.
1: Okay, but there's a number of questions here. First of all, when I told my pink eye story that I just told, when I discussed this with you at the time, you said… Yeah, there was a big debate in my office over whether pink eye is a big deal or a small deal. I just want to remember. I just want to point out that I remember that uh, because you said that in so many words and referenced people we know who did right. or did not think it was a big deal. Uh, so, first of all, if you're listening, what is your consensus on the big dealiness of pink eye? Please yes, send us uh, mm-hmm. your notes and tweets. Uh, angrily shout at us. I look forward to it. Um, I guess my next question is, what is the, what is the thing, what's the work-throughiest thing you've ever done in the name of work? Oh, I, I'm,
2: I'm, I'm good with these stories. Like, I broke my arm in yep, had surgery, was back like 48 hours later.
1: But I mean, that makes sense. You can't, you physically have to take the time and have the surgery and then you go back and that's what you do. Uh, I have a vivid memory of being so ashamed of having food poisoning, that I was trying to write the email to my boss and walk the line of of how many symptoms to describe to point out that I really couldn't come in, but that I really would if I could, like I wanted to so desperately, which is, I also remember being a grown woman staggering uh, out of my bed one day and going, I think I can go to work today after I had like the flu, the real flu, and being looked at. And uh, my my family member who was staying with me at the time said, you can't stand up. You are holding yourself up on the counter. Go back to bed. These are funny moments to me of the, of the trying to push through. And I think because Bob Costas otherwise felt fine, it was probably doubly frustrating that he was having to stay away.
2: There was one phrase in here where he says he looked out the window and he didn't know if he was looking at the Hudson river or like Russia. Like when you look out the window and you can't tell what country you're in because not because you don't know geography, but because your eyes are fucking you up that bad. Like, and this was the thing.
1: I, I I'm still torn. I don't know. But then he if, listened to the Olympics <laughs> instead of like being like, I guess I'm going to recover and like go and get a massage. He just had, he just listened to the coverage for, like, eight days until he was better. (laughs) Um,
2: Read this article. It's it's super, super funny, and it does speak to a thing that we all deal with in our workplaces. How much of a martyr are we when we're sick? And I will confess to being that person where I'm probably only 50% recovered from my cold, and I'll go in, I'm coughing on camera, like, I can barely make it. It's, it's, I... I used to believe that that was the way to show my toughness. Um, I'm getting to the point where I'm like, no, 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 my work is going to just be shit anyway, so I'm going to take a day.
1: Yeah, it drags out your work and it drags out your illness. But that's when you have the luxury of doing so and there are places that require doctor's note and sick leaves and all the rest of it. Tell us what you think. Uh, Tell us about the heroic moment that you worked through something scandalous in order to get the work done or hit the deadline Or, you know, Anchor the Olympics, Bob Costas, if you're listening.
2: And do all the other homework we asked you to do, if that's okay. Um, (laughs) uh, And send us your emails and thoughts, as always. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you thought of Black Panther.
1: Uh, Tell us if you are in HR and you think we are off base. We want to hear from you. Uh, We love hearing from everybody who's listening. Shout out to you, Dr. Wang. Um, And we always like your comments your emails your tweets uh even when you tell us we're both
2: and hey guess what we're on spotify now so check us out on spotify google play itunes leave your comments work hard we will be back next week Bye. bye